0: what's up everyone and welcome to the long game podcast hosted by thomas koppelman and trey devore in each episode you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short bite-sized episodes Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. All right. What is up? And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. Today, I am joined by someone very special, Daniel Crosby. Um, He is a podcaster, an author, a speaker. He's actually just coming back from a couple week long trip and probably two months of traveling. Um, I think he pretty much speaks at every top conference in our industry. Um, Daniel, thanks for joining me, man. My
1: pleasure, man. My pleasure. Absolutely uh, delighted to be here.
0: Yeah, me too. I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, before we get going, anything else you want to add on the intro about yourself for people to know?
1: No, I mean you did a You did a good job. I'm a psychologist by education. I think that maybe differentiates me a bit. I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm a shrink by education, and uh, yeah, have but yeah, podcaster, author. Those are sort of my my preferred hats I get to wear.
0: Yeah, and I think the background you have is really interesting because I think a lot of people neglect or just don't understand how much that matters in finance. Like I think so many people look at finance like it's solely a numbers game, but at the end of the day like, you know, I don't know the number, you always say like, you know, it's 80% emotions, 20% math or formulas or whatever. Who knows what that exact number is, but money's super emotional. The way we grow up changes the way that we view money. And I always find it really interesting. Like the example I use um, in a lot of scenarios is people always talk about like, you know, the payoff debt, pay off your mortgage or, you know, invest, right? Like that's a pretty easy one for people to think about. And I think some advisors and some people talk about like, well, Hey, you know, you have a 3% mortgage. You should be able, you should just, you know, not pay that off, invest. And for some that makes sense. And for others, that that doesn't right and i think if you look back on that person you know the person who's just like oh their parents said debt's bad you could maybe help educate them into making a different decision right you could probably show them the math help understand why financially it might be better to invest but the person who grew up in a household where like you know their parent they lost their house because their parents you know basically financial situation was ruined bank takes their house that person you might not be able to out educate them from that decision because of how strong that feeling is.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great example. It's actually one that's really close to home for me. So my dad is a financial advisor. My that's, that's kind of how I got exposed to this, this whole business. And when I was a kid, I grew up in a, in a deeply religious household. And, uh, part of that was sort of an avoidance of debt and you know we weren't allowed to swear in the house probably Mm -hmm. pretty common but my dad considered debt a four letter word like he i'm not i'm not being hyperbolic he wouldn't let us say the word debt in the house because he he found it so uh to be such sort of a negative thing and so that's the house i grew up in and i remember as a kid years of eating tuna casserole and you know eggs and ramen and whatever because my parents were paying off the house and it was like we're not going out to eat we're not eating steak we're not doing this because we're paying down the house and so you know when it came you know when when i got into my adult life i paid my house off about four years ago and i mean i had a sub three percent mortgage and you see what i did you know again the math doesn't work out on that but But it's a little more complicated than that because there's, you know, there's what we call spreadsheet optimal. And so from a spreadsheet optimal, uh, you know, consideration, I didn't make the best decision from a spreadsheet optimization standpoint, right? I had, I had a, I could make whatever it is 5% on a, on treasuries right now. And I had a a sub 3% mortgage. So from a mathematical perspective, that wasn't the right choice. But from a peace of mind perspective, I'm still pretty happy with that decision, because I've slept well at night, and it's allowed me to take risk in other parts of my life that I would have been uncomfortable with uh, had I still been carrying, you know, a, a, a seven figure mortgage, right? And so. it's one of those things where it's never as simple as the math and it's it's marrying up the math with the emotion and trying to find a compromise that I think is is what makes an advisor's work so tough and so meaningful
0: yeah I mean I think getting to know that person and helping them make that best decision for them right because I think like the example I was using I do have some clients like this I I wouldn't say scarcity mindset. It's just more of like life experiences push them into this way that a lot of what money provides for them is security. And mm-hmm. then there's other people who don't really have that feeling and you can actually focus on optimization and you know maybe what's mathematically the best, mm-hmm. but you really do have to know the other person that you're talking to. And I think this is where, getting advice from people who don't know you and then aren't professional don't have this great, you know, intimate relationship with you is really dangerous is because they can't give it from that angle. Right. And they might be actually giving it from their angle. So if you take advice from somebody in the shoes of, you know, parents foreclose on their house, they're going to give you that advice of pay off debt, whether that's right or wrong for you.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, some talking head on the news, speaking to millions of people at a time, that's millions of different financial stories and your mileage may vary. And they're, they're giving it through their own lens, as you've suggested, you're interpreting it through your lens. Uh, and, and those biases are seldom disclosed, right? Is that, is that coming through the lens of that mathematical optimal? Is that coming through the lens of, of a childhood trauma or, you know, uh, a low risk tolerance or, or a million other things?
0: Yeah. And I mean, I love that you started to go in and share the story of your life. And I think it's totally fair to, you know, base our decisions, you know, somewhat of what we learned from our parents, but that's kind of going to go on the topic of what we're talking about today. Right. So your first book you said is, is really about this, like, you know, some of the things that you've learned about money and you have this really awesome post on Twitter. That's like your pinned post. I mean, thousand plus likes on it. 400 some retweets. And it's an awesome graphic showing some of the things that you've learned about money. And so maybe what we'll do is like, I'll pick some of the ones that I really like, have you talk about, I'll chime in. If there's any ones that I don't bring up that are really important to you, I think that uh, you obviously can bring those in. But the one that very top of this is that the Joneses aren't as rich or as happy as you think they are. Talk about that one.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's there's a couple of layers to this one. So first of all, is this very sort of modern concern we have for for social media and the research on social media. Now, you know, social media is old enough now that we've been able to do some good sort of longitudinal research on it. And the research is pretty unequivocal that the more time you spend on social media, the the less happy you're going to be. And there's a very specific reason why this is the case. It's because people share. Uh, the highlight reels of their life on social media. And so the other people that are consuming that uh, take it at face value. And so, you know, I say, oh, well, here goes Thomas, like he's sharing his latest trip to Aruba and, you know, whatever, getting engaged and, uh, you, know, maxing, you know, maxing out a personal best at the gym and, you know, whatever else it is, right? And I say, this guy is crushing it, right? You're not posting about your insecurities you're not posting about you know when you woke up and your hair looked crazy and you know a, m- a million other things we're just posting the highlight reels of our lives and that's sort of as it should be i mean that's kind of what it's for but then we are fully aware of all of our failings and all of our insecurities and and we're ju- juxtaposing those uh, versus just the highlight reel of other people's lives and so what we see is that you know, the people who are out there sort of with all the flash and, and, and all this, they're just really not as happy as they appear to be because of sort of this illusory nature of social media. You know, a, a, a follow on to that though, just talks about sort of the, you know, I talked about the illusory nature of, of social media, media, the ability to, of, of money to make us happy though is pretty slippery you know when you look at the research on how money does or doesn't make us happy there's some really interesting findings right so one of the findings is that money is very good at taking away misery right like not having money is miserable and so up until the point where money can buy you You know a safe home to live in you know safe warm and dry place to live adequate nutritious food uh, you know a good school to send your kids to health insurance healthy food like that stuff is materially impactful on on your happiness but at some point it plateaus pretty rapidly and then there's only a couple of ways that money reliably makes us happy after that and it's like uh, having new experiences with people we love travel, you know, it just took my son to, to England and Scotland. It was unforgettable. Um, you know, travel and, and time with people we love is huge. Um, getting out of doing stuff we hate is huge. Like not, like I haven't cut my yard in a decade and I hope to never cut my yard again. I mean, that's just like something I 100 percent Yeah. Like really, really hate and I'm super glad I don't have to mess with it. Um, you know, the, the third thing is, is um, you know, is giving it away, you know, giving money away brings us a lot of happiness. And so all these things bring us happiness, but it's not the things that we think. It's not the fast car. It's not the big house. All of these we become acclimated to really fast. And so, you know, modern life is in a lot of ways, this mirage where we're chasing the wrong dream we're chasing the wrong idea of happiness and we're perpetuating that that idea of happiness by sharing these sort of braggy instagram posts, making everyone else miserable in the process, uh, all the while not letting them in on the fact that that we've got our own struggles.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like, I know this isn't what it was made for, but like the Michael Kitsis post where it's like the 20% iceberg above and it's like, you know, the the success you have and then the 80% below is like all the failures, hard works, whatever. I mean, that's really what social media is, right? It's just, here's the best things that are happening to me. And then you look at everybody else and think that's all that's happening to them. And they don't have the negatives when all of us have plenty of you know negatives in life. Uh, but what I also thought was really interesting that you were just talking about is like the ways that money provide happiness because I think there's like this you know we grow up in the way that money doesn't provide happiness like that's what I was taught growing up I mean I came from a religious household as well and I think they like trying to almost like try to fear you into that side so you don't try to pursue money when in reality you know we've seen the studies of like eighty thousand or a hundred thousand or whatever like after that dollar threshold money doesn't provide happiness obviously that there's no rule of thumb there. Like it's different for everybody based on where you live, what you do, et cetera. But I think this is where the like intentional budgeting or like, you know, defining your rich life, like Ramit would say comes into play because the things that do, there are things that make people happy, right? Like for you, the, you know, getting rid of things that you hate, Mm -hmm. like that is super important. Like for me in my business, that's what I do. I hire people to take the roles that I don't like. And it makes my life 10 times better. Like people like to hire cleaning people, they like, you know, instead of fixing my own car, I'm going to bring it into a shop or whatever it is like those do make a meaningful impact on your life. And it's funny, I uh, worked with a guy and he grew up in a household where like his parents weren't wealthy by any means. And so like anytime they would drive by like a lake and like for they would go for like a couple of days and they'd be like that person had to make six figures. And, you know, that, that was always the comment they made is like they were jealous of those people who made six figures who did this. And so he grew up in this whole thing that like I got to make six figures. Like that's all that matters if I make six figures, I'm going to be happy. So he went and took a job, um, you know, working for a big company, started making six figures, and he realized he was just as unhappy as his parents. And, you know, I was talking to him about it and I was like, you know, what was the realization in there? And he's like, it really wasn't about the money. It's a lot about like what you do and what you enjoy and like you know i think people start to realize that making slightly less money or you know maybe 10 or 20% less money and maybe you get a few less lifestyle things maybe instead of the $80,000 car it's 40 or the house is slightly less nice you end up being happier because you're doing something that you enjoy like that dollar amount is never going to finally be like well at least i make this much so i'm going to be happy like you don't really get that benefit
1: yeah you know we we have this thing called the hedonic treadmill right hedonism being course the pursuit of pleasure and a treadmill where you walk and walk and get nowhere yeah. you know hedonic treadmill is just what it sounds like you know our our expectations and our consumption tend to rise at least as quickly as our earning power and so you know i mean i think you and you know you're younger than i am but we can we can both look back at a time when you know you were in college or whatever and you know the the pleasures in your life were so simple right you know a meal that cost yeah. 20 Was like an incredible. Like like
0: Chipotle was like the gold standard at that time.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I remember my first job. I made, you know, I made about eighty five thousand dollars at my first job out of college, and pretty good. No, very good. I mean, I had a PhD, but you know, like (laughs) when I when I got out of college, I was like, I was like, I'm rich. You know, I'm like, if I'm like, I, this is incredible. Like, what am I going to do with $85,000? And, you know, now if I, if I made $85,000, I'd be upset. Like, you know, it's just, it's just this whole thing about like our, our, our Our style of life and our expectations tend to rise. And so we have to cultivate gratitude all along the way. You know, we have to check our uh, sort of inflating our egos and our expenses all along the way. And it's, it's not easy to do, but yeah. it, it's just money. Isn't money, isn't nothing and it's not everything and humankind doesn't do nuance well. And so yeah. like, that's, you know, that's why our parents taught us that, you know, or, you know, money's the root of all evil or like money won't make you happy. Well, it, it kind of will, but you got to spend it in the right ways and you got to be thoughtful about it. And, and that's, that's a harder conversation.
0: Definitely. I, I love what you said there. And I, I wouldn't say there's a lot to learn from Dan Blazarian in life, but I was listening to a podcast that he was on with Joe Rogan and the, he was talking about like exactly what we're talking about here. He said that, you know, he was in the military, right? Like, you know, you never had really anything nice. Like was pretty poor. And he remembers like, I'm pretty sure the story was he went and visited his brother and his brother brought him to Outback. And he was like, oh my gosh, this is the best meal I've ever had. Yeah. And now he goes to three-star Michelin restaurants for every meal. And he's like, I get no satisfaction from it. Right. Yeah. And it's because like the the difference of like what that was at that time was so great compared to now, like difference between another one great restaurant, and another when every meal is that is like, that's just what you're used to. And you end up, you know, not really getting a lot of satisfaction. I think this is the hard part for. I mean, we look at like, you know, early child actors or people who become wealthy really early life becomes really, really hard because you feel like you have everything. There's like not a next level or something to work towards. And you're right. Like that's, I think why there's so much teaching around like gratitude journals and like finding the things that make you happy because it is pretty easy in life to just get used to the good things and then focus on the only, only the bad things you have. And I've seen this in a lot of people's lives. And you know, the only thing I found to help them is eventually building that habit of gratitude.
1: Yeah, what's what's wild is that we can get used to more than we think to the upside and to the downside, right? Mm. Like if you ask people, you know, I it's it pains me to even imagine this, but like you know, like what would happen if you lost all your money, or if your or if your child died, or you know, some just like think of the worst thing you can think of. Say like, and people go, oh, well, I could never make it, and you know, I'd you know, I'd be sleeping in the gutter. I like couldn't put one foot in front of the other. And, and what we find is that yeah, people actually, yeah, yeah, it's painful, it hurts, but people do better than they think because we're really wired to acclimate to the situation we find ourselves in. And there's like fascinating research on lottery winners and, and paraplegics, like people who are injured in an accident and become, you know, become disabled because of that versus people who win the lottery. And what we find is that about a year later, they both return to sort of their set point. And, and so, you know, the, the lottery winners have this initial burst of like, oh my goodness, life's better than I ever thought it could be. But then after a while, you know, wherever you go, there you are sort of thing starts to take over. And the same thing with the people who've, who've, uh, you know, had a debilitating diagnosis or or gotten in a bad accident, you know, they think that life will never be the same. And then they find joy and sweetness and, and happiness in places where that, that they didn't expect. And so, you know, the good news, bad news of human nature is we can get used to almost anything. And you can get used to Michelin star dining. And if, if that's your life, you can get to a place where eating the best food in the world doesn't, you know, doesn't raise your heart rate one, one iota. And so I think it's a call to be careful about how you move through the world and how you consume.
0: So what, how do people overcome that? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, what, is there like advice you think for people? It like kind of going through that, because that all makes sense to me. And I was just sitting there thinking, I'm like, so what would I tell somebody who's like quickly accelerating through life and getting every experience they've ever dreamed for. And they're like, you know, in their thirties.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a couple of things to not inflate your lifestyle as fast as your income. Right. I mean, I think that's one simple piece of sound
0: sim- financial principles right there. Yeah, yeah.
1: Simple piece of advice. Like, look, life, life should get better, right? Like the quality of steak you eat should go north of Outback when you start to have, you know, you
0: start to have, have once you get that PhD,
1: that's right. You know, once you have more money, like there's, there's better cuts out there than Outback and and you should have them, but you maybe shouldn't have them at every meal. And right. You, you might not want to raise your, your lifestyle as fast as your income. And there is something to be said uh, about savoring scarcity you know, when, when you look at that research that we talked about on, on how to, how to buy happiness, think about one of the things that doesn't buy happiness is, is a big house. Okay. So, so this house that I live in today, like the first time I saw my house, I mean, like my jaw dropped, you know, I'm like, this is an incredible, you know, I called my wife who wasn't with me at the time. I went to see it with the realtor the first time. And I said, you like, you're not going to believe this place. You're not going to believe this neighborhood. It's incredible. And like now it's where I throw my dirty socks. Right. I mean, so (laughs) you just, you just get used to stuff really fast and you should spend your money accordingly. Now, so houses and cars don't make you happy because again, your house becomes where you throw your dirty laundry and your car becomes like how you get your kid to little league, right? Like it's it's a it's an amazing car when you drive it off the lot. And then it's just like the place you sit in the school line and wait for your kid You're mad. <laughs> yeah, right. And so then on the other side though, the reason, part of the reason that travel has this unique ability, uh, to, to, uh, give us happiness is because it's definitionally new, right? Yeah. Like I just got back from Scotland and you go from, you know, suburban Atlanta, To this place that looks like a storybook and you're hearing accents you've never heard you're seeing architecture you've never seen before since you're eating food you've never tried before and it's just like it's the opposite of that of that you know that that treadmill mentality so seek out new experiences new use that wealth to seek out new experiences that that won't have this diminishing quality of returns over time
0: yeah and i can imagine a lot of that too is like our lives become so routine especially like i mean i know i'm sure for you you, when you have kids everything like everything's about routine right and so like getting yourself out of your routine thinking of yourself in like even in a different way like you're just kind of like an explorer here trying new things doing new things like that just gives you like a a breath of fresh air from the (laughs) here's the grind of every single day
1: yeah yeah and you know the other thing is we have the you know we're gonna go do a deep dive on happiness today apparently but you you have this experiencing self and you have the remembering self there's there's really two types of happiness so um you know we'll use my i just got back i'm still very tired (laughs) so we'll use we'll use the trip to scotland as the example right so the the experiencing self if, if I had had a, a cell phone or a pager on during this trip to Scotland, and you had texted me at random intervals throughout that time and said, hey, how are you doing? Um, you know Sometimes I would have been standing in a medieval castle and I would have been like, wow, 10 out of 10. And then other times I would have been stuck on a train, there was a landslide, like and our train got diverted for some hours. And if you had pinged me then, I would have been like two out of 10, now, this is not great. You know, so that was my experiencing self, my, my happiness sort of rose and fell over the, the time of that trip. But my remembering self, we engage in something called rosy retrospection, right, which is where I'm going to look back on that trip, and all I'm going to remember is the good stuff, right, mm-hmm. I'm going to remember the pictures, I always get a Christmas ornament, whenever we go on a trip, I get a Christmas ornament, and then every year, We, you know, we hang them on the tree and we, as a family, we go, wow, remember when we went to Scotland and you remember the good stuff. Now that car, you know, uh, compare that to the car or the house, right? It's, it's, It's always with you and it always needs the hedges trimmed and it always needs a pipe fixed and it always needs a new carburetor, whatever, right? It doesn't have that same glow, that rosy retrospection. And the, you don't get the benefits of that. So there really is just something to using wealth to buy novelty, to buy novel experiences and, and surround yourself with interesting people in places that will grow and improve over time instead of decay and entropy over time.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, cool. I feel like we hit on that one really well. A few other ones I wanna go through. One of them that I think is not talked about enough is time is a scarcer, s- scarcer resource than money.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we, uh, we here in, in FinTwit just had, I think a really poignant example of this. Well, a, a, a couple recently we've, we've just lost some people in yeah. the community lately. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking specific, specifically of Samantha Russell and, and her family yeah. right now. And, you know it's just this poignant reminder that we can do everything we can right we can get so wrapped up in the rat race of of trying to 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 grow and achieve and make more and save more and invest more but at the end of the day time is the is the thing that we have the least of and it's the thing that's least promised to us you know i have um I have a a bracelet and a ring and a lapel pin i just my kids give me this stuff for for holidays there is this saying memento mori which is effectively like remember that you're going to die and you know in the in the gladiatorial days right that when there was a conqueror who had you know won this great battle they would parade them around the Colosseum and they'd throw them this like huge kind of ticker tape type parade and and laud their greatness But they would place a slave in the back of that chariot and the slave's job was to whisper to this conquering hero periodically, memento mori, like basically remember that you're just a man, remember that you're going to die. So at the moment of greatest elation, at at this moment of greatest success, you still have this kind of reminder that nothing's promised and nothing is forever and if you look at every great faith tradition every great spiritual tradition they're all sort of undergirded by this idea of impermanence and and sort of impermanence is being the thing that gives life its zest and its value and i i just think we we can't remind ourselves of that enough that that really spending time in a valuable way with the people that we love is is the greatest wealth of all
0: yeah i i really love that one and i think you're right. Like the stories that we've had over the last bit are are really, you know, sad, but but great reminders for all of us. And I think this is actually something I think a lot of young people struggle with is, you know, they get the idea, right? Like time is scarcer than money, but they have a hard time applying their life because they always think that there's so much more time. And, you know, I think maybe that's something that I try to talk to my clients about a lot. And I actually like my, my newsletter next month is just about this. And one of my clients posted on Twitter this week that like, she was asked to do like this big speaking engagement and she turned it down because it was her partner's birthday and she wanted to be with her partner and like celebrate with her. And I was like, you know, that is just such a good message because I think there's a few good parts about it. One is that like, you know, it's easy to say, like, we'll just celebrate it di- like later, like not a big deal. But I yeah. think that does kind of leave a lasting imprint, like whether the other person fully is okay with it or not. It's still the fact that like that speaking engagement was more important Um, when, you know, leaving the impression on other people, like you are most important, like work is, is part of life, but it is in life. Like you, the important people in my life are what's important in life. And I think the other thing I thought about when I was reading that is that comes like the people who would take that not only is it like a little prioritizing work over life, but I think it's also like kind of a scarcity mindset too that like, what if I never get one of these again? And -hmm. I think a lot of this should come from like the confidence in yourself that like every opportunity is not the only opportunity. Like you are gonna create a lot of good things for yourself as long as you, you know, continue to work hard. But I just felt like that was a great, comparison between the two. And I love what you did on your trip, right? Like, okay, well, I am going to go to work. It is going to be around my kid's birthday. I can actually create this amazing experience for my kid and partner it together. Like, I think that's an awesome way to do it.
1: Yeah. I, you know, shout out to the humans under management conference. You know, I got, my kid was sitting in a conference on his birthday. Right. And so, you know, I took him to this conference where I was speaking and attending and i actually got him up in front of the crowd right before i went on and said hey you know everyone wish wish him a happy birthday and he got you know he got a very a very hearty happy birthday from hundreds of of british folks who wanted to learn about (laughs) finance and you know unforgettable for him and i think we can merge these things but you know i read an article with elon musk the other day where he was talking about he has like i I think it was a standing saturday night 9 p.m meeting with his like business lieutenants and I just remember this and thinking like, what is the point of being that rich if you have a business meeting every Saturday night at nine o'clock? Like That is, that is the most useless. That is like wealth on paper only if, if you have a standing can't miss business meeting on Saturday night. I mean, it flies in the face of everything that true wealth means. So I think that, you know, the example you gave of the woman and her partner, I think that's exactly the right way to think about it.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. couple other ones. So you kind of slightly hit on this with like the throw the socks around, but I love the house is a place to live, not an investment because mm-hmm. I think like real estate investors or non-financial people, like to them, a house is like their best ever investment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for the average American, it's their, it's their single, single greatest, biggest asset. Right. But I think uh, you know there's there's some behavioral <laughs> there's some behavioral elements to how we account for the value of a house, right? So Robert Schiller famously did this great research on you know looking at, at, at the growth of uh, residential real estate in the US and basically found that houses have appreciated at, at basically with inflation, you know two and a half, three percent a year. And look, it, that's great. Like it's sort of it's sort of for savings. It's going to keep up with inflation. And there's a lot to be said for that. But what people do is they do this sort of bad accounting, this behavioral accounting, where they go, well, uh, grandma paid whatever, 100,000, 10,000, right? Like grandma paid $100,000 for her house and she sold it for a million. So grandma 10X her money. And they don't account for the plumbing disaster and the property taxes and you know, mortgage
0: interest and yeah
1: mortgage interest the time value of that money the alternatives that it could be been invested in um so a house is a great place to make memories it's something you should have uh it's a great way to force yourself to save and and keep pace roughly with inflation but that's about it and we shouldn't get sucked into these sort of behavioral traps when thinking about how how to account for a house
0: yeah and i think that like I used to talk about this all the time. And now after the highest appreciation history time in history, now I want to talk about it even more because you're like, Hey, you know, just because this happened over five years and some of your friends, it did blow up. Like one, it makes it less likely to happen again. Like it's already the most important, unaffordable it can be, but then people anchor to that. They're like, but, but, but like, my friend did this. It's like, well, yeah, they got lucky. During COVID, everybody was trying to move out of suburbs. Interest rates dropped. So everybody wanted to buy houses, which made it more affordable. And now we're in a completely different climate. Like, I don't think I would be counting on that again as your best investment over the next five or 10 years. And I hope it's not. But it is a great for savings. Like, totally, that does make sense. Yeah. Um. Okay. Another one that I wanted to go through is there's an inverse relationship between investment performance and time spent watching financial news.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, there's, there's all this great behavioral research on plugging into financial news. So, you know, when, when we look at the ability of financial news and sort of market prognosticators in general, it, it's very bad, right? I mean, David Dreamin did research, looked at like 70,000 consensus analyst estimates, found that they were right about one time in 170 Right. Uh, over the 70,000 instances he looked at, um, you know, we, <laughs> know from, we know from Philip Tetlock's research that that forecasters are, are bad and that, in fact, the more famous the forecaster, the less likely they were to be right, that, that basically the way that people achieve fame in that game is by having sort of one high profile, correct opinion, then kind of tending to bang that drum over the subsequent decades and being wrong for kind of the reasons you talked about with the housing market there. So like the the research on forecasting is horrific. So like, why do we keep tuning in and why are we compelled? Well, it it actually goes back to the brain, right? The the brain accounts for, you know, two to 3% of your body weight, but it accounts for 20 to 25% of your caloric expenditures every day. Like your brain is very, Uh, calorically expensive, metabolically expensive. And so one of the ways that we can think less, which is something we're always looking to do, right? We're we're always looking for ways to offload our critical thinking and decision-making is that we just defer to other people, right? So when you see a commercial that says nine out of 10 dentists choose crest, you go, incredible yeah yes done god that's one <laughs> less thing i have to think about thank you dentist right so Crested is, and when you when you hear that like you know travis kelsey drinks this kind of beer you go yeah sweet i'm in there's there's too many to to discern which one i like but we do the same thing and, and when they hook people up to brain scans and show them cable financial news what happens is really wild um because I want you to think about, we won't name names, but like, think about cable financial news. You got people, you know, smoke coming out of their ears, yelling and screaming and pounding the table, little sound effects. And when they have people watch these really melodramatic news programs, their brains go to sleep, right? The part of their brain associated with critical thinking and decision-making actually becomes dormant because what they have done is they have offloaded their thought processes to the person they're watching on TV. Like, oh, buy Nvidia. Perfect. Done. Like, you know, buy Apple. Great. Love it. Sell it. Cool. And so are forecasters good? No. Right. Like is cable financial news a net positive? No. Like, you know, absolutely not. And yet it serves a real psychological function that that people are always going to want to get met. And, you know we'll go back to the part of our earlier conversation you're always want to get this itch scratched but you just got to make sure that the person who's scratching that itch is someone who knows you and your family and your psychological profile and your your needs and your values and your goals and not some rando giving out you know blanket advice to a million people at once yeah
0: Oh, that was amazing. I don't know exactly what the number was, but like one out of 170 times they're right? That Mm -hmm. is a great statistic to pull. I mean, like, it is funny. I mean, you see on Twitter, you see on the news and everybody's just following other people and they're selling out their entire portfolio because of this. Everybody needs to hear that statistic, right? Because like, that's like the most wrong you could possibly be. Like, that is not a good statistic for anybody. Like, do not listen to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, oh my gosh, wow. Okay, a couple other ones. So one of them is, uh, market corrections come more frequently than your birthdays, expect them. Yeah. I love this. I love this one because I feel like people don't realize this. Like they they think that like the big recession is coming and it's like every time it's the Great Depression and that's it. And then it's gonna be 20 more years and maybe that's gonna happen again.
1: Yeah. So what's what's fascinating? I mean, there's there's two things that are fascinating here to me. <laughs> one is the average person has no idea what's going on at the market in any given time. Um, so my grandma, which bless her, you know, so my Nana, we're getting getting ready to see her at Thanksgiving. And she was like, Well, it must have been a hard year for you, because it's been a brutal year for the stock market. And I'm like, Nana, like <laughs> the stock market's up 14% this year. The you know, the Nasdaq's up forty percent this year. But yet the average person just sees You know a million doom and gloom headlines and kind of does some rough math that it's bad and so you know i talk about in my book the behavioral investor basically you know citing evidence that just the average person just doesn't know what's going on at any given time and so sort of assumes that it's bad or negative that's sort of point one and then the second point is every time there's a correction Right? Like every time we approach a 10% dip in the market, the news, the cable financial news, the, the print media, talks about it as though it is a once in a millennium cataclysm. And when you look at the data, like going back to World War II, you get one a year on average. Like right, you know, so in, the, in the last 70 years, we've had about 70, 10% corrections and they've averaged just better than 14 percent uh you know entry year drawdown but in seven out of those 10 years the market ends positive so it's like we talk about these things first of all no one knows what's going on and people's views of the market tend to be much worse than, than the market actually is and then the second thing is we talk about market volatility as though it never happens And so what's happening now is uniquely bad and uniquely dangerous. And that's just not the case. Like expect it as regularly as your birthday. Like if you have a year and the market doesn't dip out at least 10%, that's a weird year. And I think once you sort of anticipate that you can inoculate yourself against the nonsense a little bit because you know what to expect. And you know, it's not this once in a generation thing, you know, it's very common.
0: Yeah, this is where the like, you know, the whole Fidelity study where the you know, that proved to be wrong, obviously, where like the accounts that did the best were the ones that were never logged into again, or of people who are deceased. And I wish that study wasn't wrong. Because it's kind of actually what I found to be true is like the clients and the people that I sit down with, that have no idea what's going on in the stock market, most times are the ones that do the best. And then the other people I talk to who feel like they know everything that's going on, they feel so educated. You look at their portfolios and they are just made up of like WeWork and Rivian and you know all of these stocks that were like going to IPO and be the best thing ever and are now 80% down from their highs because they think they knew this like secret, but then they have no idea like how to actually invest. When in reality, I really do think success comes down to just don't even think about it. Like invest based on the right asset allocations and locations and have a good savings rate. And in forty years, go check your account and you're probably going to be okay. Like obviously that's a little simplistic and you need to do projections and things. But like in general, most of those people end up doing better,
1: yeah. so we it is a bummer that the fidelity study is apocryphal <laughs> but, but- but this is not apocryphal, one of the things that we one of the things that we know has been studied in 19 different countries is that if you look at the relationship between portfolio activity and performance, it's a it's monotonic it's a stair step right, so we know in every country where it's ever been studied 19 countries uh, that the more you trade the worse you do, that is, a, that is a, a, a universal. And so while the Fidelity study never really happened, like the the sort of thrust of the point is true and, and borne out empirically that the more you mess with it, the worse you do. I forget the quote about, you know, your portfolio is like a bar of soap. The more you handle it, the smaller it gets. Like the yeah. research, the research really suggests that.
0: Yeah. I love that. Okay, last two small ones. One, if you're excited about an investment, it's probably a bad idea. I just absolutely love this one.
1: Yeah, so this is I mean good investing, it's boring investing and, you know, we I talk in my book The Laws of Wealth. All all of these you're you're reading are taken from my book The Laws of Wealth. And you know, I talk about it's called affect heuristic is like the fancy shrink term for it, but basically the emotional state we're in colors our perception of the world, right? You know, someone who's excited about something isn't a good judge of risk and so if you're excited about something or if you're scared about it you need to check yourself a bit you know there's um there's an acronym that i borrowed from the the 12 step like addiction literature and it's called halt and it stands for hungry angry lonely or tired and they tell people who are in recovery like look if you're if you're halt if you're hungry angry lonely tired You should not be making big decisions. Hmm. And I I think the same thing is true of financial decisions. If you find yourself in an elevated emotional state, you should uh, refrain from making any big financial decisions.
0: That's so good. I I mean, it it makes sense, right? You're going to be blinded by it. You're going to be super excited. You're going to be blinded about the risks or you're going to be like super scared about something and you might be blinded about some of the good or the upside. Mm -hmm. So really, really well explained. Last one infrequent splurges bring the greatest happiness i don't see this talked about much and so i'd love to hear your viewpoint on it
1: yeah i mean it goes back to our thing before about the about the michelin star meals right um you need to punctuate your life with these really wonderful experiences uh, but anything can be taken for granted like anything can be gotten used to and like look i like nice things like this isn't a call for like asceticism but it's also a reality that if you buy and buy and buy and you consume and consume you can lose you can take some of the flavor out of life uh that way and so infrequent splurges are are the best yeah it's just back to this hedonic treadmill concept of you can get used to anything good or bad. So just be thoughtful uh, about splurging, not to, not to mention that there are you know, health and, and psychological benefits to, to the same. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of the health problems we have in this country are a result of us sort of splurging every day, so to speak, from <laughs> calorically sort of splurging every day. And it's easy to do, but, uh, you know, that cake tastes a lot better when you haven't had any for, for a couple of weeks.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like the feeling now as an adult of like ordering new clothes and you're like, or, or whatever, not that exciting, but like as a kid, Christmas and having like six new things, you're like, Oh my gosh, this is the best day ever. Cause you couldn't really yeah. buy yourself new things. Yeah. Th- that totally makes sense. All right, man. Well, this has been amazing. Um, before we wrap up any closing thoughts or, you know, last, you know, let everybody know best places to follow you and maybe plug your books again.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The best books to check out are The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor. I have a new one coming out late next year. Fall. Oh, let's go. Yeah. Excited about that. Um, the podcast is Standard Deviations and I'm Daniel Crosby, PhD on LinkedIn and at Daniel Crosby on Twitter.
0: Perfect. Well, appreciate the time and walking through all of this. Like this was one of the most, ep- most fun episodes for me that I've done in a long time. So really appreciate that. And everybody, we appreciate you listening. Please rate, subscribe, and we will see you back next week.